0: I think tennis as a sport invites lying to yourself or a a form of delusional thinking, in a sense, because it's hard. You can lose every week, but at the same time, because the way the tennis season is built, that you play every week, you have another chance every Monday. Every Monday that comes around, there is a new tournament, a new chance. So it invites Basically, yourself being delusional about where you stand because you continue to think positively and continue to focus on the next week, on the next Monday, on the next tournament.
1: Hi, guys. I hope you're doing well and easing your way into the new year. Things are super busy for me this month, but I wanted to drop in today as I've got something really special in store for you. It comes in the form of an interview with Andrea Petkovic, a German tennis superstar, no-turned-author and sports commentator. January is naturally a time when we set resolutions and make plans for the months ahead. And that's super exciting, but it can also feel a bit overwhelming. By the way, if you fancy some help with that, check out Mindset Wins New Year's resolution specials. Changes, big or small, can often be scary, but it's how we grow and that's something Andrea can really demonstrate with her story. In this interview, Andrea gets candid about her life after tennis, after a 16-year career on the courts. It's something that all athletes have to prepare for eventually, but when your whole life revolves around your sport, it can be very, very scary to confront. It was really interesting to hear her point of view, and if you're going through a big transition in your life right now, I hope it can help you too. Let's get straight to it. Here is Andrea.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Andrea Petkovic, and I used to be a tennis player. I retired one year ago, and now I'm an author, TV broadcaster, and tennis coach
1: I, I started playing tennis when I was seven and then I I, I choose golf I don't know why so I'm, I'm watching tennis all the time because I, I I love watching it so it's uh yeah and then
0: I'm just thinking about stopping this interview right now because you chose golf over tennis but that's on a that's on a different page you know in tennis we play sports in golf they play games that's how I like to call it I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> we st- saved the starting off on a bad foot with you choosing golf over tennis. Yeah,
1: we're back on on track. Can I continue then? Yes. Can I continue? Okay, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And then I quit golf and then I started base jumping and skydiving. And that has been my main career for the last, well, almost 30 years. I'm still very excited by this. So that's just... What I wanted to to, but we have some some common points, I think, because you just finished writing your second book, mm-hmm. which is called "Time to Get Out of the Dust." Yes, is right? And will be published in 2024. Correct. Yeah. Well, I'm also finishing my second book, and it's gonna be published in 2024. Can you give us a little? preview of the book because i'm i'm very curious so
0: my book um is about the year of so the working title was the year of goodbye the year of farewell that was the working title and it's 12 chapters every chapter is the month of the year so it's january february march april and so on and so forth and i'm taking a few literary liberties but basically it's about the grieving process of letting go of playing tennis um i think there are Athletes are all very different, some athletes Love what they do. Others do it because they are very good at it and it's easier for them to let go. For me, it was very hard to let go. I still love tennis. I still loved playing. I still loved competing. But my body was not functioning in the same ways as it had used to. And um, I was not able to practice as much anymore. I was not able to play as well anymore. And it was a sad process for me. But in the end, I came out alive and I'm here and I'm I'm happy. Again. But that's that's basically what it's about: that process of letting go, finding a new identity. What do you print on your business cards now? Tennis player is not it anymore. And uh that's what, what it's about. What is your second book about?
1: My second book is about what is holding you back from from becoming uh the best version of yourself. And uh I originally I'm a psychologist and I study sports psychology. Mm, Interesting. Oh, so you're gonna therapute me today, maybe? Maybe that's that's the ne- yeah, that's that's the <laughs> next step. But it's interesting because you had a grieving time because you lost your identity in a way.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So for me, as I said, for me, letting go was really hard. And now looking back, I think I knew in the beginning of the year already that my performance was not at the peak performance anymore that it had been maybe even a year before. My body was rapidly declining. I had injuries all the time, but because I loved it so much and still do, I kept lying to myself. I still told myself, I can still do this. I can still practice. My body is still okay. I can still, and then whenever I won a match, I would continue lying to myself and be like, oh, you see, you still have it. You have to continue. So coming to terms with something being over and looking at something realistically was was hard for me but I do have to say that um, once the grieving process was, over. I still sometimes I still grieve to a certain extent. But once I had worked through those feelings, it also gave me a lot of freedom to pursue new things and to try new things. And um, and I think that's really important. But you know how they they say sometimes athletes die twice, once when they retire and once when they well really die. So I think I went through that first death and uh, and I came
1: out of it. Can you tell me about your early memory of playing tennis. Like, how did you start and why did you start? I know why you start because your father was in the Davis Cup in the Yugoslavian team. And a, a question I'm always asking is, is um, Did your father push you or just it just happened or yeah? Well, you know, it's interesting.
0: The first time I knew I wanted to become a professional tennis player was with my first loss I ever suffered. I was 11 years old or 12 years old. And uh, my parents are from former Yugoslavia. They uh, left back then Yugoslavia, now Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, and all these different countries. They left former Yugoslavia just before the war started and came to Germany to, um, well, to avoid the war and build a a new life for themselves. And I didn't have a German passport until I was 11 or 12 years old. And so in my region, when you don't have a German passport, I was not allowed to um, play the German national championships and all these bigger tournaments because It was required that the German Tennis Federation applies you to these bigger tournaments. So I was just playing in my region and in my region, I was by far the best. I was always winning my matches. And then I got my German passport. I went to the national championships and I lost in the quarterfinals to a girl. And it was the biggest shock of my life. I still remember those feelings of like anger and disappointment and just... Anger, mostly anger, disappointment too, but just mostly anger. And I knew in that moment, I never wanted to feel this feeling again. Little did I know that I was going to make myself a life where I would suffer losses almost every week. But, um, but going back to this positive initiative, it really made me rethink uh, me playing tennis. Before that, it was just playing tennis. I loved it. My dad was my coach. I was hanging out at the tennis courts all the time. Uh, that was where I spent all my free time. But after that loss, I, I think I was maybe 12 years old, I was like, I want to become a professional tennis player I'm going to practice. I'm going to work harder than everyone else. I'm going to go running in the forest. I'm going to skip the rope. And that's what I did. And when I was 14, I played the same girl again at the national championships and I beat her and I won. And I think that was... Um, the first real lesson for me as a very young adult as a kid basically still with 14 years old that if you set your mind to something and if you work hard and if you polish your craft that you can turn things around for yourself and and that's when I knew this is what I wanted to do in my life and yeah and now I'm I'm 36 and I have played 16 years um, on tour and I was a professional tennis player for 16 years and that was, that was really fun and hard but mostly fun.
1: <laughs> it's interesting because you've, you have used your first setback in a way as a stepstone, stone, as a, as a drive to, to, uh, in the form of anger like I'm not going to lose again and, and I'll, I'll come back stronger.
0: Well, I think uh, this is what I strongly believe. I think there are three different type of athletes. And it's so interesting to me that on the ATP tour, we have all three who are the greatest of all time maybe playing at this time right now. Raja Federer just retired. But I think there is the one athlete for me that is the epitome of Raja Federer who just plays for the love of the game. They are highly competitive. They are super talented, but they just love what they do. They love the lifestyle. They love traveling. They love being on center court. They love the challenges and they just enjoy being good at something, right? You can see Them, you can see the joy when they play. You can see how they really play the game. They don't work the game, they play the game. That's for me, type number one. We have type number two. For me, that's the epitome of Rafael Nadal, who has anxiety, right? He is anxious when he goes out on court, he fears he's going to lose. It's so funny to me. He comes to Roland Garros, where he has won the most a player has ever won. He goes out into the first round. He's playing a qualifier. He's not even ranked in the top 100. And Rafael Nadal, you can see the fear in his face that he might lose today. So his motivation is this anxiety of losing. He doesn't want to have that feeling, so it makes him run harder. It makes him work more intense. I think that's the second type of athlete. And then the third for me is Novak Djokovic. And I feel most connected to Novak Djokovic, who is, I call it revenge. It's not the right word, but it's like, you all did me wrong. And I will show you. And I always was that type of player too, where he, I think, gathers a tremendous amount of motivation from people doubting him and from people telling him he can't do it, he can't overcome Federer. Federer is the goat. You can never be better. And I think he gathers a lot of motivation from that. And I was similar. Whenever I lost, whenever I got injured, and people doubted me, that's where I gained the most energy from. In a sort of kill Bill type of way, you know, like I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna show you all. And I think these three type of athletes, if you look at it, you will always find a bit of that in every single athlete that you know that has become really good in what they do. I don't know, do you agree with this? Yeah. Do you, have you seen that pattern maybe?
1: Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I totally agree. I, I couldn't agree more and it's a very clear and, and well Argumented, uh, analyze. No, no, I completely. You can see the anxiety in Nadal, especially right before he he enters the court. He's like doing all these these movements, and and you can see his face really tensed. And and yeah, Djokovic is I I. I and I would make a, a very maybe too quick connection with you. Is it a cultural thing? You think.
0: I was wondering that too. Um, as I mentioned, my parents are from former Yugoslavia. Novak Djokovic is from Serbia. I do think there is maybe something to be said about, I think there is a thing called small country syndrome where you're like from a small country. Uh, you are from Belgium. Maybe you can connect with that. And you always feel like you're surrounded by these big neighbors who all want to, you know, do you wrong. And that's completely in your head that's not doesn't have that doesn't mean that this is the truth but in your head you feel maybe always uh always surrounded by these threats and i i have a very good friend who's welsh and he has a similar mindset like that and wales specifically you know in great britain a very small country they always feel wrong felt wronged by by england and i do think that maybe culturally you, there is something within you that you can't explain where you just Think to yourself, I have to show them, even though, even if there is no reason at all, you just make it up in your mind. You know,
1: it, it's the revenge of the underdog in a way. Yes, <laughs> and and you feel yeah because you want to show the world that we you exist. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What did you first love about tennis? Playing tennis. What hooked you? What 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 fascinates you about tennis?
0: Well, two things. Um, one thing strategy. I was always somebody who loved overthinking things. I was always, even when I was a teenager, I was always sitting there making game plans. I I sat at the tournament sites all day watching every opponent that I could possibly play, watching all the girls. I always had a little notebook where I wrote down all the strengths and weaknesses of my opponents and my rivals that were with me on tour. So I just loved that tennis was such a strategic sport and that you had to come into the match with a game plan and you had, and sometimes you had to change the game plan on the fly, right? You would come in with a plan. The other girl is doing something different and you have to rearrange and you have to be flexible. That was the one part. And the other part, part was I was always fairly good in school and I didn't have a lot of um, friction and challenges in school because I was, you know, I was picking things up quickly. I was disciplined. I wasn't lazy. So I would, you know, read a lot of books and everything came easy to me. And tennis, I would consistently meet my limitations. And it, and I realized very quickly that if I got to the place where I meet a limitation and I push and I push and I push I will build something else. I will build a form of resilience. I will gain more confidence. I was a very shy kid and I would gain more confidence from confronting those limitations over and over again. And so it was like, we talked about it in the beginning, it became like an addiction to meet those challenges and meet those limitations and and overcome them possibly over and over again. And if I didn't overcome them, It sort of fueled the other addiction part where I was like, but I have to try again. I can't give up. I have to try again. And so all in all, I think those two parts of just meeting the limits of your mind and and the strategy part was what I I think created my really long love for tennis and that what still sustains me and why I still love the game so much and why I still watch it every day um, if I can. And I think those two things are it, yeah
1: you needed to be pushed if you can push yourself and get to know how far you can go as a human being and and stretch your limits you're going to create more self-confidence you're going to create more self-esteem you're going to you're going to have well obviously better results and in the end you're going to have much more satisfaction
0: yeah i do think so i really believe so and i also believe that just Um, I mean, you, I'm sure I've never done skydiving. I've never done anything like it, but I'm sure that no matter how many times you do it, when you're sitting there, you will get the symptoms of nerves and they are very simple. Your pulse goes up, your hands start to sweat. You have to maybe go to the bathroom and you get like butterflies in your stomach where you don't know, is it good or is it bad? I don't know. And you just get, tension in your body, right? You maybe pull up your shoulders a little bit. You feel your neck because you're like, uh, you just have the tension. And I think learning to sit with that and just learning to accept it and also learning about yourself that you can still function despite your body sending you signals that something is wrong and something is off is really, really important for staying calm and remaining calm in high pressure situations. And I think for me as a kid that was such a such a big confidence boost to have that feeling that i can i can overcome those nerves and still play a good match even though i was maybe throwing up in the bathroom just Ten minutes before the match, I could still go out there and play and nobody would notice anything. I know when I was a teenager, sometimes I was so nervous, I would cry in the locker room before the matches because I was so scared that I couldn't play. And then I would still play okay. And I think that really strengthens your confidence and correct me if I was wrong about assuming that you still have those same nerves, no matter how many times you
1: jump. Oh yes, for sure. And I like to keep it that way because it, it keeps things exciting and challenging. And that's how you stay sharp as well. Otherwise it becomes a routine and then it becomes dangerous. I mean, in, in this type of discipline uh, and it's, it gets, it gets boring. So I think like knowing that you can still control your mind and your emotions and, and regulate your emotions and not panicking and staying calm and, and having the choice to, to stay calm. And and I call this unshakable. You really stay unshakable. It it gives a, a lot of satisfaction and a lot of self confidence because you know, well, I, I can do this. So it's uh it's really Yeah. I think it's it's the best way to build your self confidence and your self esteem as a human being. Definitely.
0: Yeah, I saw it just because you just said it calm and composed. I saw one time Serena Williams was taking a letter out of her tennis bag to read it and the camera panned over her shoulder and I couldn't read anything, but just the first line of the the paper and it just said, stay calm and composed. And it was like underlined and three uh, exclamation points. And it always stuck in my mind forever because that is such a good um, summary of how you have to feel in a a moment of pressure or in a moment of competition, calm and composed. And despite your body freaking out about something, you can still in your mind feel calm and composed if you practice it as many times.
1: Talking about Serena Williams, do do you see any connection with your upbringing or totally not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say Serena Williams was my idol growing up. She's... um, four or five years older than me. So when I was a teenager, when I was 12, 13 years old, so just around the time when I decided I wanted to be a professional tennis player, she won the US Open as a teenager herself, 18, 19 years old. And I saw her and it was like my mind had been open just this you know young girl she had such an open face and so much passion and she showed her emotions on the court and played such powerful tennis and such smart tennis too using all the angles and the whole geometry of a court it was so fascinating to me so she was my idol and interestingly enough we retired at exactly the same tournament so the U.S. Open 2022 both me and Serena retired um, at the same time in that process, everyone was talking about her career and showing the highlights. It gave me a moment to compare myself to one of the living legends of our sports. And I had never been close to that, but I realized how much I had build myself after her you know i didn't have her talent but i tried to be passionate on court i tried to never give anything ever never ever give a ball up i tried to run for everything and i realized that i had watched her for so many years that i had through imitating her, had become a similar kind of competitor to Serena Williams, never close to what she had been able to do, but still it helped me to to have an image when going out on court, what I wanted to represent as a tennis player and as a competitor, not only as a tennis player, but especially maybe as a competitor, because tennis is such a psychological sport that you can win a lot of matches by being a good competitor, because you cannot play your best. Tennis every day—that's just impossible. And if you can win with uh, with a, having a sloppy start or a sloppy uh, middle part of the game, you can still overcome. And I think being a good competitor is the foundation on what everything is built in the end.
1: But she was really raised like to be a champion. She had, in a way, she had no choice. Andrea, when was the moment you felt that you you could turn professional? and and make make your I mean your life as a professional tennis player
0: um that's a really good question. I think when I was playing, I didn't really think about that while I was playing. I was just you know going day in day out, pursuing the next tournament, the next prize money, the next points but the more I was raising up in the rankings, the more I was starting to look at the bigger picture in a sense that um. When I was around 150 in the world, I told myself, if I reach the top 100, I will invest in a coach. I didn't. My parents didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have um, sponsors or anything, so I couldn't really afford a coach. I was traveling alone in the world and just coaching myself or on the phone with my dad, who was my coach back at home. And so I could see myself starting to think more sustainably about my career because I told myself, OK, when I'm top 100, I'm going to hire a coach who can travel with me for 10 weeks. When I'm top 60, I'm going to hire a full-time coach He's going to be with me all the time. Oh, now I'm 20. When I'm top 20 in the world, I'm going to hire a physiotherapist and a physiotherapist will travel with me all the time. So I could see myself all of the sudden, not only being a tennis player, because for the heck of it, I could see myself building a, a surrounding around me, building a team, becoming like a little CEO of my own company where I was hiring people to make me better. I was hiring mental coaches and psychologists and physiotherapists and good fitness coaches. And so I had all these parts, bits and parts, all of the sudden in my life. And at one moment I stopped and I was like, huh, I guess I'm a professional tennis player now because I'm, you know, I'm hiring people to make me better. I just worked with a nutritionist to make my recovery smoother. So clearly this is something I'm going to do for a very long time
1: so you had a a clear plan and but it was a step by step process because it was also it de- dependent on on your ranking and your income which is which goes which goes together but you had a you had a clear plan from the very beginning
0: i did yeah well exactly i think it was there was a really good combination i want to say the like having a bigger picture, but at the same time taking it day by day, right? And being pragmatic and realistic about it and uh, and not losing myself in fantasies, but like, okay, come on, you have to put the work in today. Despite not having a coach, you still have to practice, you know? If I had just, because I see it sometimes with others, now that I'm coaching younger girls, I see it sometimes with them, they're like, Once when I can hire a coach, then everything will be better. And I try to explain to them, girl, you can put in the work right now. You don't have to have a coach. Yes, a coach will help you. He can make the work more structured and you can work on little things. But you can put in the work right now. You don't need a coach for it to start, right? You can do it today. You can do it tomorrow. You can do it in 15 minutes if you need to. And I think that combination of being pragmatic but still putting in the day-to-day work is, uh, is really important for for ath- not for athletes only, I think for anybody who wants to be, as you always say, the best version of themselves and who wants to improve and, and you know change and evolve day in, day out.
1: Yeah, so it's not about hiding behind excuses but making it happen Despite of the fact that you don't have immediately all the the resources.
0: Exactly, yeah. And definitely the one thing I used to also have excuses or sometimes pity myself. I think that's normal, but what it can never do, it can never, never, never. That is just simply not allowed. It can never affect the actions on court and in training. You can pity yourself. You can ask yourself, why is everyone against me and why does the world hate me? Those are all normal feelings, but you can never sit in your bed for five days and refuse to practice because you're thinking the whole world is against you or something didn't go your way. You still have to Go through the actions and go through the motions. All the while, sometimes you can allow yourself for a little while to pity yourself, you know.
1: (laughs) But not for a long time. Otherwise, you become a victim in a way.
0: Exactly, exactly. It should be always clear. I always used to say it. I always use it as an example. Um, Also now when I work with my younger girls as a mentor, I use it as an example when somebody gets angry and then I ask them after the match, I have them play matches and one of them gets angry and then I ask them afterwards, hey, what do you think you could have done better? And they always say, oh, I got angry. I shouldn't have gotten angry. And I always tell them, no, you can get angry. It can be a kickstart, but... That's it. It's a kickstart. If you dwell in your anger and your disappointment, your performance will gradually become worse and worse and worse and you will just self-destruct and not be able to, to bounce back from that. But if you get angry li- re- really short and yell and kickstart and get an adrenaline rush and maybe something starts working and your legs start to work and you start to sweat, that's okay, but you cannot dwell on it. And I think it's the same with self-pity and excuses. You can allow yourself to have a thought every now and then, but you can never allow yourself to dwell on it and you cannot allow it to become a pattern. That's because what makes us human beings are patterns and routines and rituals. And you can eat a chocolate cake, but if you eat it every day, then you have a problem. And it's the same with bad thoughts. You can have bad thoughts, but if it's a pattern, then you will have a bad life.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. It's really about. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. But just move on and let it go. So it's really about being aware, accepting it, and then just taking action to go into into the the other direction. And talking about this early on, your uh, in your career, what mental strength do you feel really gave you the edge over other players?
0: Well, I I know that because as I I mentioned it before, I had limitations in my game. But one thing I knew I had, and I could rely on that no matter what, I was able to focus really hard for a very long time. That was the one thing. And now um, as I move on from tennis and do other things in my life and I write and I do TV, that has come to help me so much. Just being able... To zone in on one thing and one thing only and not think about anything else. And that was my big, big strength. And I knew if somebody came along like a Serena Williams, who was just a better tennis player than I was, she would beat me. But if I found somebody that struggled, if I found somebody that was not as good, if I found somebody who had a letdown, I would win because I would stay the same consistently from first point to last. I would always have the the focus up. I would always have my concentration in place and i think that was my my biggest strength and i think we we lose that nowadays because our society has changed so much with all the digital possibilities and the phones and so many offers and what to watch and what to read and what to consume and media. It's normal. It's, you know, societies change, humans change. But I think we sometimes forget that being able to focus on one thing and one thing only for a longer period of time can be incredibly beneficial to not only success, on the court or off the court, but also about the, the, your self-esteem when you can just let yourself be in one thing for, for a very long time. It gives you such a good feeling about yourself and so much self-esteem.
1: And it's interesting because you said my mental strength was being able to focus for a long period of time and now I'm using it in, in a different environment.
0: Well, I think this what we are doing right now is a perfect example of that. For example, um, I also in my in my uh, task as a tennis analyst, I have to interview people sometimes, and I think when you really concentrate on the on the other person, really listen to what they say, you don't have to prepare their whole life. You can have a great conversation. You get a lot of things out of them just by simply focusing and zoning in on that one person alone and on that one conversation alone. And you can be a journalist that has to interview people or somebody who works in an office for a long time. I do think that if you can zone in and focus for a very long time, it will make your life much easier because you will be probably able to do much more work in a smaller amount of time, and then you have more free time to spend with your family, your kids, whatever it is. And so I'm really... Uh, learning that I honed skills in my professional life as a tennis player that I can now use in my and I'm putting this in quotes real life because unfortunately the life of a professional athlete ends very quickly I always say I'm 36 years old that's young for life but that's tremendously old for for sports <laughs> but so you know if I have another two thirds of my life in front of me hopefully if if everything goes well I uh, I hone skills in the first part of my life, in the first chapter of my life that I will never lose and that that I can forever use whatever will come my way in the future.
1: Do you think that focusing for a long period of time is something we can train? Are you born with this or it's something you can really train your brain to focus more and better and deeper?
0: I am a strong believer that anything that is related to mental strength can be practiced. That's my, I'm a big proponent of that. I do think that some things we have stronger than others. I think that I'm just for some reason able to focus or maybe, you know, this is always the very interesting thing that I ask myself, maybe because I felt that I had certain limitations in my game. I had to develop another extraordinary you know skill set to be able to balance out what I was lacking maybe in tennis possibilities so maybe it was I wasn't born with it but I developed it because it gave me an edge over the others that I couldn't control with my tennis skills alone so I uh, I'm a big believer and big proponent of everything mentally related that it can it can be practiced be it focus be it resilience I think resilience is something that, Cannot be practiced in a lab, I would say. But resilience is something that is built through challenges, through life, through hardships and um, and the way you go through them. But I do believe that everything can be practiced. Just read ten before you go to sleep. Instead of watching a series, read 10 pages and you will notice that the first two pages will be hard to read and you're trailing off in your thoughts. And after the third, fourth, fifth page, you will be in such a zone and such a flow that by the 10th page, you will be like, ah, I might read five more. I'm in such a flow and this book is really interesting. That's of course only if you read Cedric's book or mine, the others I can't vouch for, but our books are A plus. Or, <laughs>
1: okay. Why did you decide to seriously pursue interests outside of tennis while being a top ranked player? Was it because you needed something else than just tennis or the identity of a tennis player? Or because unconsciously you needed already a plan B because you felt at some point, mm, maybe I'm going to have to do something else afterwards?
0: That's that's a really good question. I do think that In the beginning, all the other things I was doing, I I studied, it was more pseudo studying for my parents because my parents were worried about me, you know, putting everything on one card and being like, I'm a tennis player now. So I was studying for them so they can, you know, go to bed and sleep at night thinking that, okay, if something happens, Andrea can still study. But I think my mindset changed a bit when I had my first big injury when I was 20 years old, I tore my ACL and I was out for one year, it had just been the start of my career, it was the first tournament that I had reached the top 100, I was ranked 92 in the world. I was 19 years old. I was ready to conquer the world. And a few months later, I tore my ACL and was out for a month. My ranking dropped back to 500. I had to start from the beginning, basically. And I think in this period of time, I realized how quickly this thing that I loved so much could be over, and um, and that it just from one day to the next could not be the thing that I do every day in my life anymore. And that was very early on, and so I think I always uh, kept my foot. in in other things as well, just in case it gave me a safety net and it gave me the confidence also on court to be completely free and try everything I can without having to worry that I get injured and I I have nothing afterwards. So I think those two things came together a little bit.
1: So it was not really a coincidence. It was something you had a game plan again.
0: I don't know if it's like a game plan. If I was that smart, I doubt it. I just think that I really strongly believe in the subconscious. I think that the human mind is working through a lot of things in their subconscious that we're not aware of. And I think the subconscious protects us from a lot of things that we are not aware of. And I think my subconscious mind was much, much stronger than what I was able to fathom in my conscious mind day in, day out. As a 19, 20 year twenty-year-old, but I do think that if we if we trust ourselves, trust our instincts, sometimes that um, the subconscious takes over when our conscious mind doesn't know what to do anymore.
1: Yeah, but I, it's a f- you need a form of intelligence to be aware that okay, if something goes wrong, if if I. And, uh, it's it's a form of intelligence, so it's in it's also a form of, of high self-awareness and connection with yourself. Don't you think so?
0: Well thank you for calling me intelligent, Cedric. I will take that as a compliment. <laughs> I would definitely sign the self awareness part. I do think that I always try to look at myself somewhat pragmatically as well as subjectively and somewhat objectively. I try to take go out of like in this in the last year of my career when I sort of zoomed out and tried to look at my life from the outside that's what I always try to do, and I think it has helped me in the long run always to you know make The right choices and also make choices that are maybe not as popular because you've been around high performance athletes and you've been around this, these environments and they tell you, you cannot do anything else. You just have to focus on one thing. And if you lose energy anywhere else, you will fail in this sport that you picked for yourself. And I think... It took courage and I have to say I wasn't the the first one. I think the Williams sisters and Maria Sharapova were some of the first athletes on the women's tour that took matters into their own hands. Maria Sharapova became a businesswoman on very early on. Uh, after she had a big s- shoulder surgery, she founded her own company. She was a brand ambassador for many companies and really involved. She bought shares in companies. So she became a businesswoman really early on. And both Williams sisters, Venus and Serena, took their time off the courts and used them to design their own clothes and design their own furniture. And so they had outlets too and I think having these idols for me was really important to not listen to all the agents in the tennis world who are telling you that the only thing you can do is practice eight hours a day and not think about anything else, but just have the courage to follow my instincts and look at Serena and Venus and Maria and be um, and felt supported through them that they are doing the same thing as I am and they are being very, very successful while doing it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Can you describe the match where you feel you played your really absolute best?
0: I can, I can. So um, I think there um, there are different types of best matches. I think there are best matches where just everything seems to be going your way, right? It feels like if you were in a casino, whatever you put on the roulette table... It would always come the way and you can't even explain it. It's just what it is. It's just happening that way. You have those type of matches and then you have those type of matches that are not as easy in the beginning, but you find something inside yourself where you get into that flow zone and all of the sudden everything seems to flow and everything seems to fall into place in the right way. And I think... Those matches you can only have when your opponent is playing as well as you are because it becomes almost like a telepathic connection between the two of you. It's like an unsaid truth that you're like, okay, girl, you're playing well. I'm playing well. Let's see who ends up winning this match in the end. And that's the matches that were my favorite matches, those really tight three-setters where I came out on top, but it really didn't. It felt like... In the process, it almost felt like it didn't matter who won this match. It was just a very real and true and pure battle between two people who tried their best to win. And those are my my favorite matches. And But both of that had, has in common, if we talk about mindset, is that flow state where you are not thinking about what you're doing and just being. And that is such a beautiful state to be in is just the pure existence of being and not thinking about anything else. And I think that is really hard for us humans to do because we constantly come in with our little thoughts and snippets and he said that and she said this and what do I think and what does he think? And if we can remove ourselves from those thought processes and just be, it's such a beautiful state to live in.
1: Can you name one? I'm really curious, but can you name me like one match with one opponent?
0: Yes, I I can. Yeah, so it was uh, 2011 Australian Open in the uh, fourth round. I played Maria Sharapova. It was a night session, 7 p.m. I was fairly new on tour and I was playing really well. I had played the finals in the tournament before, so I knew I had it in me to win and also maria was a player that i had admired for a very long time so i really went on court with a different type of mindset i knew i was i needed to be ready from the first point on and it was the quickest i ever fell into that flow state i can remember at least looking back at my career it was night session. It was not before seven p.m. So the sun was setting uh, behind the Rod Laver Arena. The lights were coming on. The center court was booked. It was packed. I think it was nine thousand people or eight thousand people, and. Right away, I used the noise of the crowd to sort of focus and I used it as white noise in the background and as sort of background noise that helped me get into the flow state. And I remember that from the third point on already, I had completely forgotten everything around me. The occasion, um, the fact that it was one of the biggest matches I had ever played in my career, who I was playing. I was just sort of within myself and, um, and just not thinking about what I was doing, just doing, just existing, just being in the moment. And I can... And there is actually, it's really funny, there is an image of me when I win the match, I turn around to the ball kit and I tell them to bring me my towel because I'm so immersed in this experience that I didn't even realize that the match was over. And it took me 10 or 15 seconds to realize that I had won. And I think it was like sliding into a dream and then sliding out of a dream again.
1: What was the hardest thing about touring and competing? And I I, I partly know the answer. So for those
0: who don't follow tennis so much, we travel uh, to all these tournaments in the in the world. We are away from home for 30 weeks a year. If you don't practice at home, which many don't do, many practice in Florida or somewhere else, it's even 40, 45 weeks a year. So you're really away from home all the time and it gets very, very lonely, especially in the beginning when you're just a- Come on tour. You're 19, 20 years old. You have all this energy for life and for competing, but you don't really have friends. You don't know anybody. Uh, you're traveling with people that you pay for traveling with you, so you can trick yourself into thinking they are your friends, but really you are paying them to listen to you. So how friendly are you, <laughs> really? You know. And I think that loneliness, especially when you lose a tough match or you're far away from home, and you know, if you have a tough day at the job, at home, you can go back and have a beer with your wife or meet a few friends in the next pub and just talk about it. And we would be really far away from home. And the, when I started traveling 16, 17 years ago, there were no phones. There were, there were phones, but there were no iPhones the way we know it today. You know, I remember when I first started traveling, I would call my parents from the hotel phone tell them the number of the hotel and then hang up. Because if you stayed under a minute, it would only cost like one euro fifty. But if you went over the minute, you would pay like €25. Euros. So there wasn't that communication as well as it is today. I think later on, it became much better because I had traveled these places so many times. I had friends in all different parts of, of the world and the technology helped much more to stay in touch with friends and family at home. So it became came a little easier but I think in general that loneliness is really tough for tennis players because they not only feel alone in their hotel rooms but also on court because it is an individual sport and you have to rely on yourself all the time.
1: So I think it's a common thing of of professional tennis players like the loneliness of the tour and the isolation, especially when you start. So yes, what 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 mental strength did you lean on to cope with the feeling of, of, of loneliness and, and isolation?
0: Well, I think what helped me most there, and we talked about it a bit before, was the fact that I had other interests and the fact that I had things that I was passionate about aside from tennis. And to be clear, Tennis was my number one thing despite of it. And I think that's really important to stress that you can have other passions um, aside from your number one thing that you... Dedicate your whole life to and sacrifice everything for. But I started to do these things where when I knew it was going to be hard, I started to set myself tasks in other forms of life. For example, when I started traveling as a teenager, I was so shy to go to a restaurant alone and just enjoy a good bowl of pasta I would always think like everyone is looking at me and thinking oh she has no friends that's why she's alone in the restaurant you know so I would always give myself these tasks where I would tell myself okay you go to this one restaurant that you wanted to try and you sit at the bar alone and you order the food and you will enjoy it or like you go to the pub around the corner and you order a Water, a sparkling water with lemon, and you watch the football game in the pub, not alone in your room. So, these little things, I would give myself tasks and not only in the leisurely kind of way, but also I would um, tell myself, I have this book, I want to finish it until the end of the week. So, today I'm not going to, you know, watch TV eat chips and self pity, I'm going to read this book and try to become better and try to challenge myself to become better and more resilient for the next, next thing. And I think having those little tasks, and they are so small, right? Going to dinner at a restaurant is not a big thing, but it can feel like a big thing if you're always alone. And if you force yourself to do these little things, it can just help you snap out of that feeling of isolation, because that's what it is, the feeling of isolation. If you can snap out of it, if even if just for an hour, it can really refresh your mind. And the next day when you wake up, you feel much lighter and you can go about your business again
1: coming back to your the, the grieving time because i can really relate to this i believe me and i've been asking myself also a lot of questions but you were lying to yourself mm. and and convincing yourself oh i can still do it i'm okay and i still have the motivation i still have the everything but deep down it wasn't the case mm. uh it's 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 really I think it's really a, wor- a deep work of introspection in a way.
0: It it is, and you know what the thing is. I think tennis as a sport invites lying to yourself or a, a form of delusional thinking in a sense because it's hard. You can lose every week, but at the same time, because the way the tennis season is built, that you play every week you have another chance every Monday. Every Monday that comes around, there is a new tournament, a new chance. So it invites basically yourself being delusional about where you stand because you continue to think positively and continue to focus on the next week, on the next Monday, on the next tournament. And um, so I think the, the introspection was really looking at my career, not day by day, but as a whole and looking at what I was putting in and what I was getting out. And it came to a space that I was working three times as hard to just remain where I was, you know? Because I think what is really tricky as an athlete is the fact that age comes into your body gradually. It's not like from one day to the next, all of a sudden you're like, ah, I'm old. I think this is it. Bye, guys. Every day is just a, a little battle of attrition with your body and you lose a bit more, you lose a bit more, but it's not from one day to another. So you really can ignore the facts for a very, very long time. And you can tell yourself, ah, it's nothing. It's just a little injury. It's just a little muscle muscle thing. But when you look at it from the outside perspective, you're like, ah, I had the muscle thing here and now I'm having this joint thing here and I get sick every time I work a little harder, something is up. But to do that. That you have to step outside of yourself, and that's sometimes really
1: hard to do. I can so much relate to this, and don't you think we are a bit in in denial in a way?
0: Oh yes, a hundred. I mean, now that I'm looking from the, you know, I'm looking from the future onto my past self, and I was, and I can now I'm thinking like, how naive was I? What was like? Why was I beating myself up about it when it was very clear, not only in in my day-to-day training schedule that I couldn't fulfill anymore without getting injured or sick. But also on paper, I wasn't winning as many matches anymore. I was dropping in my rankings. And I think, and that's why my um, my book, my second book is titled Time to Get Out of Here." I think I caught the last moment to get out of there before my performance would have just declined rapidly and I would have fallen off the rankings and that would have been really hard for me. I think we all of us athletes, we have a certain ego, uh, something we want to satisfy, something uh, like an adrenaline rush that you need in in winning and also losing sometimes can be an adrenaline rush just the same because you you get the permission to be sad and angry. And so there is all these things that, that come with being an athlete and now looking back at it, I was. Definitely in denial a hundred percent.
1: I really think we're all addicted to achievement. Like you said, I was every week I was convincing myself that I could win again, that I could and it, it's yeah, it's I think it's it's exactly this.
0: I, th- I think so. And, you know, initially my book, the way I thought it in my mind was supposed to be the 12 step because, you know, in um, in a lot of addiction help, they have a 12 step program to help you get off your addiction. So I wanted my book to be the 12 step program to get myself off my addiction to, uh, to playing tennis and, and being a, a professional athlete. What remained of it were the 12 months, but I think it's still a metaphor for these 12 steps of trying to Get rid of the of the habit of, of winning and losing, of triumph and disaster. And I think there is something to it to be said. The first few years when I started practicing and playing really hard, when I had a day off or two days off or when I had vacation, I would come so depressed and so sad and without any energy. And in the beginning, I was just thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I so low? And then eventually somebody said to me, Andrea, you're just, you have to continue doing something with your body because your body is used to the dopamine hit every day, to the adrenaline every day. If you just rid yourself of that from one day to another, of course your body will just feel low in energy and will not know what to do with itself. And I do think there is a mental aspect to it, but definitely definitely a physical aspect too and so when when i retired i continued doing sports and i continued trying to get my heart rate up so i wouldn't fall into this deep hole of of nothingness not only mentally but physically as well
1: yeah yeah for sure it's uh, you you have to keep moving that's that's would you recommend your book to other athletes in the same situation that are not <laughs> yeah I
0: I don't know if I would, because if you're not sure yet to if you want to retire or if you maybe have to retire, uh, I think it could make you a little bit sad, the book. And maybe you will identify with some of the processes that I was going through. But I think everyone has their own timing and everyone will come to terms with it. What I do recommend is definitely uh, looking back at it, sitting with those feelings, just Be sad. Just be sad that this part of your life is gone. Just, you know, grieve your identity. Grieve being a tennis player. Grieve the center courts and the masses of people cheering you on. Just sit in those feelings for a while. And I think... That will be easier then than if you try to push it all away and try to not think about it. And then I think it will come back much stronger and much harder. And maybe you will make strange choices just because you don't know where you're at. So that's my only recommendation I have is to just sit with it and allow yourself to be sad about such a big part in your life that has has maybe slipped through your fingers. But... As I said, it always opens new new doors, and it opens the freedom to pursue new things and and challenge yourself in different ways.
1: Yeah, in if you're interested in other things, which I, it's not always the case for every athlete, because it, it seems, and I'm I'm gonna get there a little deeper later on, but it seems that you have a lot of different uh, sides in your life and you're very interested and curious in in many, many different things, which I think makes the the grieving and tell me if I'm wrong, but makes the grieving maybe a little more, uh, I'm not going to say easier, but like bearable. Yeah, or...
0: yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Because despite the, the grieving process, I still knew that something was waiting for me afterwards. You know, it wasn't a goodbye forever. I c- remained in tennis. Uh, I'm mentoring young talents. I work as a tennis analyst and expert for TV. So despite having the grieving process, I still knew something else was waiting for me. So you know, I think processes are much easier to get through when you know there is something on the other end waiting for you. And so I definitely think that that made it um, easier for me. I do think that this curiosity also helped me become a very good tennis player because uh, you don't, you maybe haven't. I mean, you probably haven't followed my career. I'm not a person who won Grand Slams. I wasn't the number one in the world, but I was I was okay. I was number nine in the world. I made the semifinals of, of a Grand Slam. I won a few titles and... I had limitations in my game. I wasn't the most talented player in the world. I wasn't the one that had the most feeling for the ball. I wasn't the most natural tennis player, but I had other things that were my strengths. I was able to focus really hard and really for a really long time. And I was very curious. So every day I I really pursued new things and I tried new things. I was ready to try things out. I was ready to try things and training and try new methods of eating and new methods of recovery. And I think that curiosity that is helping me now in my second part of my life has also helped me in my part of life when I was still a tennis player. I may be not the most talented tennis player that had ever walked the earth i was not raja federa let's put it that way
1: (laughs) no but it's really i think yes i well you you asked me the question do you think it enhanced my performance yes for sure i think staying curious and open to change that it's it's having a growth mindset and and it's way more important than having talent but you just mentioned Roger Federer, who is, who, yeah, he's probably one of the greatest player who ever lived. And I heard an interview of his former coach, Paul Anacone. You, you've heard about him? Oh, yeah. Yes, of course.
0: I know him well. He works with me at the same tennis channel that we work for.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And su- very, very interesting guy. Super. And he was saying the same about... Roger Federer he said he was he's such an interesting person because he's so open and interested in in different things and I thought and you can see no he retired but he's still relevant and it's the same I think in in your case you retired but you still relevant in your environment
0: Right. I'm relevant for my mother and father. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that's maybe the most important thing, no? Yeah, maybe it is. That's true. That's true. Uh,
0: no, but you're right. I had other offers right away. You know, I had offers on my table the next day. I retired on a Monday and on a Tuesday, I already had a next plan on the table for, for at least the next six months. So I was good. You know, I didn't have to worry about that. And, um, and I think... What is really interesting, and especially nowadays, I think the image of an athlete has changed tremendously. I think... Now, an athlete is not only an athlete, they are the CEO of their own company, they are have to be experts in marketing, they have their own brand, they have to set themselves up for, for the next chapter of their life. I think there is so much more to an athlete. And what I really like about that, and you just mentioned it, it's changed the perspective on athletes. If we think back 10, 15, 20 years ago, a great athlete was that. He was supposed to be the most talented guy who had ever picked up the tennis racket or who had ever skied down the mountain slope or who had ever kicked the football, now it's different. Now I think we as a society appreciate much more the struggles that athletes go through. We appreciate more um, the things that they can overcome with their limitations, the mindsets, things that we as normal people, whatever that means, normal people, that we can learn from them and that we can implement in our own life. And I think that's why athletes have become much more relevant because they are not the hero in our TV anymore, but they are identification images that we need to make or to do things maybe better in our life or just different and to challenge ourselves to become different and better if we
1: can. I'm thinking about one athlete for me who really transcended this and went way beyond the identity of being a professional tennis player. I'm thinking about John McEnroe. Mm-hmm. He's so much more than a tennis player. He's such a personality. He's, he's, he's smart. He, he's, I don't know if you've seen the last... Uh, he gave a presentation for Stanford. He just never compromised on, on who he
0: wanted to be ever.
1: Authenticity. Mm-hmm. It's paying off, but he has a huge personality as well. So, uh, yeah. He,
0: he does, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever met him?
1: No, never. never. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, no, I did, but I, we never really talked. But there was, um, where I live, they were organizing a senior tour with uh, Pat Cash, Guy Forget, Bjorn Borg, uh, Mats Wilander, and all these generations from the eighties, which me as a kid inspired me a lot. And I was watching, and I'm still watching all the time, but like a lot of personalities for me. I don't know if it's a different era or, but anyway, and he was there. So I, we had, and Guy Forget invited me to the, the, the dinner with every player. It was super interesting because I was I was like sitting at the table with my my yeah childhoods uh, people who inspired me yeah yeah it's 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 re- it was really 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 interesting.
0: I still can't believe you picked golf with all these idols at your at your side.
1: <laughs> I, I I try not to have regrets, but I I started paddle tennis a few years ago, which is good for old athletes I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, I I think paddle tennis actually is uh is actually challenging athletically. I do think it's a sport. Pickleball, we shouldn't start a discussion about pickleball. That's on a different piece of paper.
1: What's next for you? How do you see the next 5 years, 10 years? I yeah,
0: That's a very good question. I think the writing will always be part of me. That's something I really enjoy. Um, I think also just being uh, an expert for the big tennis tournaments is also something I can't let go of just because I love the sport so much. But I think one of the more rewarding things for me has been mentoring young players and the young women that are going through the same thing that I once went through and just being a helping hand. In the end, you have to make these experiences yourself and you can't teach anybody uh, without them living through it. But I think helping them and mentoring these young talents has been very rewarding for me. And I think I will continue to do that in the future
1: as well. Thank you very much, Andrea. I will read your book for sure, because I, I, I can totally connect. So I'm, I'm really curious about it. Thank you so much. And... Uh, Yeah, thank you very much for making the time. Thank you for your energy and inspiration. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: I hope I see you one day. Bye.
1: Wow, we really got into it there. It's made me think about how we can share our experiences to help one another. And I really love how Andrea takes all the lessons she's learned and is so generous in sharing them with the next generation of tennis players. I'm really looking forward to reading her new book. I hope you found this conversation inspiring. And if you want more insights to keep you motivated through the year ahead, be sure to check out our back catalog of episodes. There's enough there to keep you going right through 2024. That's all from Mindset Win for now. Happy listening.